Loving God, these are passages that raise more questions than they answer. Help us to understand the truths that you have revealed to us and to have a sense of expectation and trust in things which are beyond our understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have noticed in the past week there was a certain horse race that stops the nation. And uh, I have to say I'm not a great follower of the racing and um, I can't tell you any great details as to what the outcome was and all the drama of the race other than it seems to be something that people spend more time partying around rather than the race itself. But One thing I do know about the Melbourne Cup is that it's a long race and by the time that the horses turn the final bend and hit the home straight, that is where you'll separate the horses that are the stayers, those who have that energy to continue and to surge, and those who will fall behind. With nothing like that energy, but I can relate to that because a lifetime ago I used to be in some athletics and my races were the 200 metres and the 400 metres. 200 metres is just crazy. You just draw a deep breath and just go hell for skilter. 400 metres you just try and be just less than a sprint around the whole one loop of the track. But when you turn that final bend, you know that you're either going to draw deep and, and uh, make that final race or you're going to fall away. That's when your energies are totally put to the test. Those images came to me as I was reflecting on these passages these, this week. Now, um, the theme of both concerns the resurrection. And the answer for both is that the resurrection is something that is a reality that is now and also it is something that is not yet. And I'll come back to that imagery in a few moments. But both passages have been chosen because of that uh, connection. We are in the home straight of our liturgical year. Each year, the 12 months that we have follows a different calendar within church and the churches right around the world follow this calendar. Um, it starts with Advent, usually around the beginning of December. So you would know Advent calendars, it begins the countdown towards Christmas and all that comes on from that. And so the, the whole cycle of 12 months is broken up into different seasons and different festivals. The first six months of that largely follow the story of Jesus. His entry into the world and various events, the epiphany is when he was revealed to the nations and it culminates with, the, uh, with Easter, with the events of the final week before Jesus' death and resurrection, and then the whole new life that emerges on from that. Then following on from Easter, there's a, a countdown of a period until the ascension, recognising Jesus um, being drawn up into the heavenly realm, and then finally uh, Pentecost and Trinity. And the rest of the year, the other six months, is creatively called ordinary time um, and we see it actually when we have the green colours in the, uh, those seasons and in the ordinary time we go through events and truths that we hold on to as God's people as we reflect on the experience of God's people in the past and the present and the future. We are coming to the end of that time so November draws us into the home straight of this 
liturgical year, this church year. And the readings are all focused on the culmination. Where does this all take us, the goal? So another way of looking at it, if you look at the 9 o'clock position on that, you see the theme of the final Sunday that concludes the whole church year is Christ the King, the ascended, resurrected, glorious Christ who shall return and where the heavenly realm and the earthly realm become so bonded together, they become one. That is the goal of creation, to be the new heavens and the new earth. So the readings that we have in November help us to see that line, that finishing line before us that emerges on the horizon. So the readings that we have today both focus on being that in-between space. We're not there yet, but we've also come a long way. And since the resurrection of Jesus, this whole new dimension of life on earth and the heavenly realms has changed. The power of the resurrection has been released. And we begin to experience something of that in our faith and our whole outlook. So I'm going to use the image of the, uh, the dawn ima- uh, emerging. And actually halfway through the sermon, I'm going to have a break and we're going to have a, a wonderful song um, called The Shadow of the Dawn. So we know the, the, the dawn begins to get stronger, the shadows begin to strengthen. And that's where we're in that stage of that dawn emerging on us. But to take the imagery a little bit further, imagine in the race that we've t- come into the home straight and we're in the middle of the pack. So there are... Uh, some who are way behind us and almost out of sight. That would be what I would call the equivalent of our first reading, Paul and the Thessalonian church. Paul is referring to events that were troubling the church back then, some 2,000 years ago. And uh, we can only just see some echoes of what that looked like. And Paul tells the, uh, the church, well, you know what the, uh, my teaching has been. You know what I spoke to you when I was with you back then. Well, they might know. We don't know. And he also says, you know what this teaching is that's troubling you, that people claim to be speaking on my behalf, and I want to tell you, no, it's not. What they're saying is not what I'm teaching. But you know what they're saying. Well, actually, no, we don't. Um, So we have to sort of read in between the lines a little bit about that and take some broader themes. So that's we're looking back a little bit to learn from that. But we also look forward into what lies ahead. And the second reading from Luke 20, Jesus just gives us a little glimpse of something that is still on the horizon. We can't even really see it. A little window into what's on the other side of that line. So let's just approach it in those terms. Um, So first of all, going back to um, Paul's concern, what he has heard is that some are teaching that the day of the Lord has already occurred the day in which Jesus has returned and the new age is fully initiated and all the teachings that Jesus had given uh, about what lies on the other side of the line are now a present reality. And we do know something about that in the life of the early church, that some were saying, well, if Jesus taught that there is no marriage and this is where we are now, then we don't have any need for that. Um, We'll hear more about Jesus teaching about that in a minute. And Paul says, no, no, we're in this in-between stage. 
that the new life has, has, uh, is now growing stronger on the horizon. The hope and the confidence that we have at this whole new realm is before us, but we're still in the present day and age, and we need to be realised that that's a messy day and age. There will still be acts of darkness, and there will still be things happening that will cause concern and anxiety. Paul's purpose in giving them this reassurance is to say, this is exactly as God has uh, let us know will be the case. Now he talks about a figure called a man of lawlessness who will be let loose and uh, will run rampant in trying to replace God, be so powerful, so centre of everything that people would come and be called to bow down before them and saying that there is no one like them and this man of lawlessness will exercise destructive power and control and assume that they are beyond a challenge. And Paul says we've been told that this will be the case. Now we don't know who this man of lawlessness is. And it could be, and I have a sense that it's almost a typology, it's a sort of a sense that uh, men will rise who will exercise power and assume that they are the centre of this world, but they will come and go. Now, it's not hard in our own world to see what these figures look like. Now, I could be wrong, but it seems to me across history it does seem to be men of lawlessness. I can't think of any females who have stepped into that space and tried to exercise superpower and super control. Just putting it out there. I won't comment any further. But we certainly can see men of lawlessness and a man at the moment who's causing enormous havoc by their sense of power and control and threatening I could do more and no one can challenge me and causing fear and intimidation. And Paul says, such people will come and go. They are not God, even though they may assume that they have the powers of God. And nor is the future in their hands. There is only one Lord, and his name is Jesus Christ. And there's only one qualified to be that Lord because of his death and his resurrection and his ascension and this whole way in which he is acting in step with God the Father. They are one and the same. And the power of the Spirit that comes in his name is unlike any other power. So Paul writes to encourage them. So I'm going to pause at this stage and we're going to show a clip. So uh, the song is called Shadows of the Dawn. I really encourage you to listen to the words. And it says that that dawn on the horizon is not there yet, but it is getting stronger. And we can begin to feel the heat and the light and the energy that comes from this dawn, from the return of Christ. We'll listen to this, then I'll come back and we'll look at the second passage from, uh, from Luke.
not only does Paul say that that day is drawing nearer and that dawn is getting stronger, but the harvest from that time is also beginning to flourish. So he describes the church at Thessalonica as the first fruits of a harvest and that harvest is continuing to grow and it has been throughout the 2,000 years since then. We are now part of that harvest and that harvesting growth of that abundance beginning to emerge as the sun gets stronger is also an image that describes the fullness of the kingdom. When it comes to the second passage from Luke 20, we're now coming on the other side of that finishing line, if you like, what that life and the fullness of the kingdom will look like. And it is a future experience. It's a situation that uh, presented itself to Jesus when he was disrupted by some Sadducees who came to ask him a question. Now, it helps us to know a little bit about the background about the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They often are used as though they are similar people, but actually they were totally different in terms of their theological camp. The, uh, the Pharisees were out in the villages, they had the synagogues, and they believed and pretty much accepted all that we would describe as the Old Testament, the prophets, the wisdom, the writing, the history, and uh, the, all the imagery about the future the kingdom, the, the, uh, the flourishing of the new creation that comes in the prophets. The Sadducees did not accept that. The Sadducees tend to be focused around Jerusalem and the temple. They tend to be the priests and that was the big thing for them. And they only believed in the first five books of the Bible. Matthew, oh, Matthew uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, um, Numbers and Deuteronomy the books of Moses, and everything else they said, no, no, we don't accept that. The reasons for that was because most of the prophets were criticising the priests, and they didn't really want to hear that. So they set that to one side. And as a result of that, they did not believe in the resurrection hope that the prophets had talked about, and that uh, the Pharisees certainly affirmed that there will come a time when God's people will, will rise and live in the resurrection. So in this theological dispute, the Sadducees came along and tried to enlist Jesus in this space. But we remember that Jesus had been talking about the resurrection. One particular occasion on the funeral for Lazarus, when uh, he, he was speaking to the family and friends, and he had yet to bring Lazarus out of the tomb to show the power of that over Lazarus' own resurrection as he emerged from the tomb. But Jesus spoke to the family and friends and said, don't you believe in the resurrection? And they said, we know that there will be a resurrection the last day. And he said, I promise you, those who trust in me, will, though they will die, yet will they never truly die. They won't experience that separation from God, even though they can, will experience the physical death. Elsewhere in John's Gospel, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection, Jesus said. So the Sadducees wanted to take Jesus on with this, and they thought they had an absolute slam dunk of a question to prove their case. So they challenged Jesus with this question, and they drew on the law of Moses, what's called a Leverite law. Now the law says um, that if a... Uh, a, a man married a woman and then they didn't have any children and then the man died, 
the custom was that the next brother should then marry that woman so that the family line would have offspring. The fear was that if, uh, if a man married a woman and didn't have any offspring, the family would come to an end. That family line would cease to be, and that was a horror. So they had a process that if uh, that happened, then the next brother should marry and they should have a child and the family line will continue. But if that brother uh, dies without a child, then the next brother should marry, and so it goes on. And the Sadducees, aha, now, let's imagine a situation where that happens with seven brothers, and it appears that none of the seven brothers were up to it, and there's no children. So they die, and eventually the woman dies. And they go into the supposed resurrection, which the Sadducees don't believe in, and this woman is confronted by seven husbands. What is she to do? It's rather curious that it wouldn't be a problem if it was the other way around. They had no problem with one husband and seven wives. They managed to cope with that okay, but anyway, I won't pursue that one any further. So they thought this is a slam dunk of, an an- of a question. There's no answer to it. And they stepped back to see what Jesus would respond. And Jesus says, you have no idea, really. So Jesus begins to point them to the the reality that in this age, whereas uh, Paul's letter in the Thessalonians talked about two days of the Lord, the decisive first time when Jesus came and the return of Jesus, here Jesus talks about two ages. He said, in our present age, this present experience of life, it is shaped by, uh, by, by marriage and by birth and the cycles of life and death. There are children born and they grow and we will die and so the cycles continue. There is giving and taking of marriage. That is the present age. But in the age to come, Jesus says, that will no longer be the case. Just as no one will die, there will be no death, there will be no process of of growing old and frailty and all comes of that, so too there'll be no procreation is what we would assume. Now I have to confess that of all the various encounters that Jesus had and I would have loved to have listened in on and observed and watched on, this is one in which I think I could not have resisted not putting my hand up and asking a question. I would want to know more. Do we get to choose what age we are? You know, I rather like the body I had when I was 30, even though the mind was a bit not quite as fully baked as it could have been. Can we get to choose? Jesus is not trying to tell us that information. But he is saying that this experience of life is yet to be fully, and it's a flourish in that full sense. You see, the, the Sadducean view was basically this is as good as it gets. This life, birth, we live, we die. And it's the end. Is that view that for some that's pretty good, others it's not so good, but that's, that's what it is. Whereas Jesus was saying, no, the resurrection state, what, what lies ahead is so much better, qualitatively better and in terms of the whole dimension than anything we experience now. So the prophets have talked about a time when there'll be no more suffering or grief or... Um, threats or darkness and violence that will be done away with and all that creation was intended to be and to become to grow and to flourish into will become the reality in effect Jesus saying that is what's over the other side of that finishing line now Jesus isn't just 
answering a theological answer, though he has a slam dunk of an answer for them. He says, well, <clears throat> in effect, okay, you only accept the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. One of those is Exodus. You remember at the burning bush, then Moses addressed God, and how, what did he describe God as? Oh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Then Jesus pauses, saying, well, surely God is the God of the living, not the dead. They must have been alive and still be alive. At that point, the Sadducees were silent. Some teachers of the law said, well said, teacher. <laughs> wow. And no one dared to ask him a question anymore. <laughs> but the point is not that Jesus was proving himself as a more able theologian in response to the Sadducees. Jesus was pointing to a much greater truth that there is more to life than we experience here and now. And as much as the, our present age, our present experience of life has the whole mix of things that are good and wonderful and things that are troubled and things that are messed up and all that comes of that, he said that God's work is working in and through that towards a goal. And that goal is the fullness of this resurrected life, the fullness of the kingdom. It is started in the Jesus' life and his teaching and his example and his death and his resurrection and his ascension and the bursting out of the Holy Spirit. That has put it on a whole new axis of, of, of how that is at work in this world. But that work is yet to be concluded. If you think in military terms, it would be a bit like saying that the, the great victory of D-Day when the Allies crossed the Channel and entered into the occupied territories and took on the Nazis, that from that moment on the whole tide of the war had changed and the end was going to come, but they weren't there yet. It's almost in that sort of space of a crossover. The victory is assured, but we are still in that space where work is to be done. In both passages, the goal is to encourage God's people in the hope that lies before us. It says in Luke 20, 36, in the passage we just had, they will never die again, Jesus said. In this respect, they'll be like angels. They are children of God and children of the resurrection. We are and we will grow into the fullness of that. So as we've turned that bend into the home straight, we are encouraged not to look back, not to falter, but to draw deep, because it's not a race to see who wins the race, who is first. It is a race to complete and to join the company on the other side. Just this past week, we've had a couple of funerals for church members. They have gone before us, but we shall catch up and we shall join that great heavenly company. Let us not just celebrate Advent, let us not just celebrate Christmas, but let's celebrate the hope that lies behind it. Amen.